Listener discretion is advised. We will be talking about mental health issues and suicide. Welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Mental health. It's a topic society has come to understand and empathize more with. Using insensitive comments or language like calling someone bipolar or schizo when referring to their emotional behavior is now unacceptable. We have gotten better and kinder in recognizing the seriousness and legitimacy of mental health. It's as important, if not more, than your physical health. Many areas of our life cause us mental stress. Things like our jobs, our families, our finances, our physical health. But for people of color in Canada, facing racism is another cause of stress. Experiencing physical, verbal, and psychological stress on a daily basis puts a physical toll on the body that builds over years, over our lifetimes, not to mention intergenerational trauma and its specific effects. This kind of stress increases your blood pressure, it can cause anxiety or depression, it lowers your sense of self-worth, and it affects your output in school or in the workplace, and in general, your participation in society. Experiencing racism directly isn't the only way that BIPOC folks are affected, actually. Being a member of a racialized group and witnessing acts of racism against others, like in the media, causes stress known as vicarious trauma, with symptoms similar to PTSD. Reading about it was like an aha moment. This is why, for so many of us, seeing acts of violence in the news against black and brown bodies is so traumatic. In addition to it being a horrible acts of violence against somebody, it's a reminder that the color of your skin is enough to get you killed. Experiencing racism on a daily basis decreases your mental health, especially when compounded by financial issues, physical health issues, intergenerational trauma, loneliness, or culture shock. But when and if you decide you need help, it isn't as easy as picking up the phone and talking to a therapist about your problems. Today's episode, we're talking all about mental health, mental health and systemic racism, challenges around access to services, as well as what anti-racism in mental health in Canada looks like. We know this is a big topic, but we're going to cover as much as we can with the time that we have. As we've outlined many times on the podcast, racism is an ideology and a set of practices that seek to legitimize the inequality faced by racialized groups and assert the superiority of another status quo on a racial group. Racism creates this binary thinking, placing white people at the top of a social hierarchy and racialized people at the bottom. The result of this is a power imbalance. Racism diminishes social inclusion, both explicitly and subtly. A subtle form of racism that we've talked about includes microaggressions, which, as a reminder, are defined as the brief and commonplace daily, verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities, whether intentional or not, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slight. Because of the ambiguous nature of microaggressions, they're harder to identify and to act upon, but we do know and are learning more about its effect on mental health. Canadian data on impacts of racism on mental health are consistent with what we're seeing in international literature. 
the trend is that ethnic minorities are subject to stress related to their minority status, such as discrimination, assault, or the relative lack of access to healthcare. Racism affects one's well-being, self-esteem, and self-confidence. Victims of racism constantly have to use defensive and adaptive strategies to face oppression, domination, and victimization that could lead to psychological exhaustion. According to research by Simon Corneau and Vicky Sturgiopoulos, for their paper, More Than Being Against It, Anti-Racism and Anti-Oppression in Mental Health Services, they say, in quotes, Constant exposure to racism increases behavioral exhaustion, psychological affliction, and physiological distress. Racism can also be internalized, and this creates negative outcomes for victims. Internalized oppression can lead oppressed people to doubt their very selves, their inherent worth as human beings. Racism doesn't only affect the well-being of victims. It also hinders their access to mental health services, and we're going to talk more about this. But reasons include lack of information about services, economic constraints, cultural mistrust, and communication issues. In the past, we've talked about systemic racism and bias in the healthcare and social services sector. The disregard of race, ethnicity, and culture equals systemic patterns of misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment. It's been found that Black people are more often given a diagnosis of schizophrenia compared to white people. Some reporting suggests that ethnic minority clients are more likely to be hospitalized and treated with pharmacotherapy, which is treating a disorder or a disease with medication, rather than receiving psychotherapy. Some of the most tragic effects of systemic racism that we see in Canada is the legacy of government policies on Indigenous peoples. This is a clear example of how systemic racism's effect on people isn't always blatant personal experiences of racism. It's due in large part to the racism that is built and baked into the foundations of our societal systems, such as healthcare, criminal justice, and child welfare. Systemic racism can manifest as increased poverty and associated socioeconomic effects, such as unemployment, underemployment, low-wage jobs, low education, and homelessness. When you are living a life in socioeconomic turmoil, your mental health is affected. In Canada, there are a disproportionately high number of Aboriginal people with some mental health concerns, such as higher levels of anxiety, stress, and stress-related illnesses like high blood pressure, heart disease, and nervous system problems. There's a higher risk of depression and suicide, General feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, fear, mistrust, despair, alienation, and loss of control, as well as damaged self-esteem, which also results in a higher risk of addiction and violence. Some of this is from disproportionate socioeconomic context, but there's another layer, which is intergenerational trauma. If you've been paying attention, you can understand why. Yesterday was the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Communities are still grieving from the impact of residential schools. Children's bodies are still being found across the country. Every day, Indigenous women and girls go missing or are murdered. There is a suicide crisis happening, in particular in Northern Indigenous communities. So there's a lot of collective trauma among First Nations people that doesn't always get addressed. Culture is another influence on many aspects of mental health, illness, and services. 
When indigenous and racialized groups have mental health needs, there are few psychiatric services that can respond specifically with research, clinical support, programming, organizational change, health promotion or community collaboration that indicate cultural competencies, understanding, and awareness is embedded in a systemic manner. The psychiatric system that we have in Canada is still Eurocentric in its values, worldview, and practices. A diversity report commissioned by Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in 2003 identified racism against both staff and clients as one of the most significant diversity challenges at the centre. The report said, in quotes, Anecdotal evidence in Ontario indicates that a disproportionately high number of those in our psychiatric forensic system are poor immigrant men from racialized groups. In a report titled, After the Door Has Been Opened, from the Canadian Task Force on Mental Health Issues Affecting Immigrants and Refugees, noted, in quotes, In Canada, negative public attitudes, separation from family and community, inability to speak English or French, and the failure to find suitable employment are among the most powerful predictors of emotional distress among migrants, persons who are adolescent or elderly at the time of migration, and women from traditional cultures are also more likely to experience difficulties during resettlement. A 2003 Statistics Canada longitudinal survey of immigrants into Canada also showed that newcomers continue to experience challenges in accessing housing, labor force entry, and health care. There are unique challenges for immigrants and refugees to Canada, and this is often experienced as a threat to life or freedom, traumatic flight experiences, the death of family or friends. They may also be ashamed of their past experiences or fear hurting their families through their revelations of their mental health struggle. Did you know we are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with? If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch and we'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, nononsensepodcast at gmail.com, K-N-O-W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. When BIPOC folks do go into facilities to get help for mental health, there is often a failure to effectively diagnose and treat members of these racialized groups and Aboriginal people. There's a number of systemic barriers when it comes to equitable services for mental health. This includes institutional issues, general access, pathway problems when it comes to intake, assessment, and diagnoses, issues when it comes to treatment, lack of representation and awareness, and then culturally, there's also these common myths and misconceptions, as well as stigma. So we're going to break down each of them briefly. When we talk about institutional issues, this is about the leadership of psychiatric institutions and how many of them don't fully recognize racism as a systemic problem in their organizational culture, human resources, clinical services, research, or community partnerships. The larger problem within institutions is the lack of a coherent and comprehensive strategy, plan, or resources dedicated to address equity and access as an issue for people of color. So let's talk a little bit about access. There's a lot of issues that affect access, such as information being in only English or French, 
there being too few culturally specific outreach initiatives or services promoted to Aboriginal or racialized communities, having a poor referral relationship with community agencies, problematic physical location, as well as a lack of awareness of community and community needs. When we talk about pathway problems, racial profiling, racist assumptions, and stereotyping in psychiatry are often believed to be strong determining factors to intake and assessment leading to misdiagnoses. Misdiagnoses includes underdiagnosing a problem or overdiagnosing a problem. This accounts for the non-delivery of appropriate treatments because of an erroneous diagnostic label that could have been put on someone based on bias and discrimination. This can also lead to a deferred intervention for help seeking to be delayed for unnecessarily long periods of time. When we talk about treatment planning and treatments, it's really important for cultural awareness from service providers. If staff are not culturally competent or racially aware, there will be issues when it comes to treatment. And if we're being honest, treatment is often not culturally relevant or appropriate in many contexts. There is a lack of representation and awareness, and this is another barrier. It's often difficult for people of color to build trust due to historical injustices and the deep-rooted institutional issues that exist. When it comes to cultural issues, myths and misconceptions also plays a big role when it comes to barriers. There's a belief that mental health support is reserved for people experiencing severe mental illness or psychiatric issues, but not those in need of a healthy mind to deal with emotions and learn how to improve the quality of their lives. There's sometimes a belief that mental health problems can get better on their own. And lastly, stigma is also a hindrance for people to discuss and seek mental health support. If mental illness has always been a taboo topic in someone's family or in community, it can be really difficult to break the mold and start a conversation. Some people feel that seeking mental health support undermines their faith or makes them weaker when it comes to their faith. And some people fear that if they seek help, word will spread through the community and this will negatively impact their social relationships and standing in the community. Some people are often not aware that confidentiality is required and important when it comes to seeking mental health support. After all of this, you might be wondering, oh my god, is there any kind of silver lining? I won't say there's a silver lining, but there is good news that although racism and oppression affect mental health, so too can anti-racism be embedded in practices to help people. There are organizations and practitioners who embed anti-oppression and anti-racism into their work to support people looking for mental health services. The main component of anti-racism and anti-oppression in mental health practice is empowerment of service users. This is accomplished by allowing mental health service users in decisions that concern them within all components of care. So when it comes to programs, when it comes to policy development, when it comes to setting the agenda, by validating their life, experience, pride, belief systems, and strengths. It's all about mobilizing clients' strengths and resources as a key component of empowerment. Including anti-racism and anti-oppression when it comes to mental health care does have some critics. Some suggest that an anti-racism framework isn't enough to capture the whole spectrum of experiences that people feel related to oppression. Some feel that anti-racism and anti-oppression philosophies 
run the risk of perpetuating a stereotype that racialized groups are victims and they're powerless and that they need action to be taken for them. Rather than promoting people's individual strengths and ways of coping and showcasing success stories and role modeling, there are organizations that are dedicated to bridging mental health support and access with anti-racism and anti-oppression at the center. One such organization is called Across Boundaries. Across Boundaries has been providing mental health and addiction supports and services to racialized communities in the greater Toronto area since 1995. They're located in the northwest part of the city, and some of their programs include art therapy, men's support groups, music therapy, client councils, and community kitchens. They are proponents for anti-racism and anti-oppression in their work, and they have a framework that recognizes that racism, racial abuse, and racial violence affect the health and mental health of individuals and communities. They do recognize that there is diversity among racialized people, but that anti-racist practice is a strategic approach to addressing all forms of oppression in the mental health system. What I really like about them is when we came across the research is that Across Boundaries believes that racism and mental health are intrinsically intertwined and they must be addressed together. I should say that, especially when it comes to mental health support for BIPOC folks, that a lot of it comes from a community level. If you see the kind of work that happens in Indigenous communities to address the trauma, the intergenerational trauma that so many of them experience, a lot of their restorative, holistic practices come from their own traditional teachings and knowledge. And other BIPOC communities are also using this kind of approach to heal those in their own communities. There are a number of resources and organizations dedicated to providing mental health support and services specifically to BIPOC folks and to their allies. We're going to link a site called Crisis Services Canada, and it has a ton of wonderful resources and links like how to practice self-care, links to free workshops and contact information for people who want someone to talk to. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, mental health is something that is becoming less and less of a taboo, but there are still a lot of conversations around this topic that are really difficult to have when it comes to friends and family and at the community level. Let's all be a little bit more generous and kind and open-minded when someone actually does have the courage to tell you that they have mental health challenges and they need the support. It's a really difficult system and space to navigate, but there are resources available. Make sure to check out the Crisis Services Canada links that we provide in the show notes. Share that out with family and friends because you never know who is going through something and, and maybe going through it alone. It's really important that we start taking care of our mental health the same way we take care of our physical health. We're not all great about eating healthy all the time and exercising all the time, but it's definitely a part of people's daily or weekly or monthly practice. But how often can we say we do the same when it comes to mental health? How often can we say we take a break from social media or a break from technology and really make sure that our mental health is being taken care of? I think we still have a long way to go in that in that sense, but we're getting there. We're getting there a little bit closer every single day. Join us next week for the next episode. But in the meantime, engage with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. The handle is racism is nonsense. Racism period is period nonsense. If you're a community organizer who would like to collaborate with us, contact us at no nonsense podcast 
at gmail.com, also in the show notes. Beverly Osasua is our researcher. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. I'm your host, Nuri Yunus. Thank you for joining. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye.